Then Jesus said to those Jews which believed on him, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. John 8:31. That is one of the marks of those who are disciples of Christ in reality and not only in appearance. They are all taught of the Lord, Isaiah 54:13, and not merely by men. And I know that whatsoever God doeth it shall be forever. Nothing can be put to it, nor anything taken from it. Ecclesiastes 3:14. False Christs and false prophets may seek to beguile them, but it is not possible to deceive the elect. Matthew 24:24. Hymenius and Philetus may err concerning the truth, even denying the resurrection, and in consequence overthrow the faith of some. Yet we are at once assured, nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his. Second Timothy 2:17-19. None with a saving faith can be overthrown. And why? because they are enabled to continue in God's word, uninfluenced by current opinion or modern thought, the child of God, even though the last one left on earth, would hold fast the profession of faith without wavering. Hebrews 10:23. 2. The Maintaining of Holy Affections and Principles It should be clearly understood that perseverance is not a distinct and particular grace separate from all others. Rather is it a virtue which crowns all virtues, a grace which sets a glory on every other grace. The first stirrings of the new life are seen in conviction of sin and contrition for the same. Yet repentance is not an act to be performed once for all but a grace to be exercised constantly. Faith is that which lays hold of Christ and obtains from him pardon and cleansing. Yet so far from that being something which needs not to be repeated, it is an experience which requires to be renewed day by day. The same holds good of love, of hope, of zeal. Perseverance is the continued exercise of holy affections and of principles, so that we do not merely trust for a while, love for a while, obey for a while, and then cease, but forgetting those things which are behind, we press forward to those before. These all died in faith. Hebrews 11:13. They not only lived by faith, but they continued doing so to the very end of their earthly pilgrimage. Blessed are they that mourn, Matthew 5, 4, Mark well the tense, not they that mourned in the past, but who still do so. Even Pharaoh and Ahab, yea, Judas also, had transient qualms of conscience, but those were nothing more than the stirrings of nature. But the child of God has within him a deeper principle, a principle of holiness which is contrary to evil, and this makes its possessor grieve over his sinfulness. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, not only who once hungered after righteousness, but who long ardently for it now. 
Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. James 1, 12. How much theology is to be found in the grammar of Scripture? To whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God, precious. First Peter 2, 4. Yes, coming for fresh supplies of grace, for further counsel and instruction, for heart-reviving communion. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments. Revelation 16:5. They upon whom the benediction of God rests are not those who once ran well, but whose graces continue in exercise. Christians are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. 1 Peter 1, 5 God does not preserve his people by the mere putting forth of physical power, but by renewing their graces, particularly their faith. It is through their continued reliance upon Christ, their trusting in the divine promises and on God's perfections as engaged to fulfill them, their keeping of his commands and their overcoming the world, 1 John 5, 4, that the saints are secured from fatality. And their faith is maintained by Christ's constant intercession. I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And God's response thereto, who fulfills all the good pleasure of his goodness in them and the work of faith with power. Second Thessalonians 1, 11. This does not mean that the Christian's faith continues in unabated exercise all his days, for as the most fruitful tree passes through a winter time of non-bearing, so it often is in the experience of the believer. Yet, as the life is still in the tree, though leafless, so faith remains and bursts forth afresh. Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief, expresses his general course. 3. The maintaining of holy conduct or good works. When a person's understanding has been supernaturally enlightened and his affections divinely renewed, there cannot but follow a radical change of conduct, though this is made more prominent and radical in some cases than in others. The difference is much more apparent in one who was thoroughly irreligious and guilty of gross outward sins before his new birth than another who was regulated by the training of pious appearance and preserved from debauchery. Yet even with the latter, a new creation must express itself in a new life. The word will be read and meditated upon, not so much as a duty, but a delight. Prayer will be engaged in, not perfunctorily, but heartily. The Lord's people will not only be respected, but loved for whatever of Christ may be seen in them. Honesty and truthfulness will mark his dealings with his fellows, not only because this is right, but because he would not grieve the spirit, while daily work is performed not as an irksome task which must be done, but as a service gladly rendered unto him whose providence has wisely and graciously ordered his lot. 
At regeneration, God imparts spiritual life to the soul, and all life is followed by motion and operation. Before the new birth, the soul was spiritually dead, and at the new birth, it was entirely passive, being wrought upon by God. But after the new birth, the soul becomes active. Perseverance, then, is the endeavors of the soul to concur with God's quickening of it. Hence it is that the Christian life is often described under the figure of walking. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Ephesians 2.10 The motions of the body are transferred to the soul, which by faith and love is conducted along the way of God's statutes. Ezekiel 36, 2 and 7. Walking is a voluntary action, and the renewed soul has pleasure in the path of godliness. Walking is a steady and continuous action, and not a spasmodic and irregular one. So the Christian pursues an obedient course not by fits and starts, but steadily and steadfastly. Walking is a progressive motion, moving onwards to a goal. So the Christian normally goes on from strength to strength. Psalm 84, 7. Walking as such is incessant, for it ceases as soon as we sit down by the wayside. So the Christian life is a walking to the very end of his pilgrimage, and until heaven is reached, perfect rest is not entered into. But ye, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Jude 20 and 21. It is by such exhortations that the Christian is stirred to use the means that make for constancy. Care has to be taken if there is to be spiritual growth. It is not sufficient to be established in the faith. We must daily increase therein. The foundation is laid that a house may be erected thereon, and that is built steadily, bit by bit. For this, prayer is required. This is the channel through which health and strength is obtained. Neglect of prayer is followed by arrested growth, nay, by decay of graces. For if we go not forward, we backslide. To pray aright, the assistance of the Holy Spirit has to be sought. Further, we must keep ourselves in God's love by avoiding everything which displeases Him and by maintaining close and regular communion with Him. Should we leave our first love, then we must repent and do the first work, Revelation 2, 4. Finally, hope must be kept in exercise, the heart fixed upon the glorious prospect and consummation awaiting us. 4. Such maintaining of a holy profession, holy affections, and holy action is necessary in order to salvation. The very term salvation clearly implies danger. 
and of none can it be said that they are completely saved until they are completely delivered from danger. And certainly the Christian is not so while sin remains in him and he is left in a wicked world and exposed to the assaults of the evil one. See that ye refuse not him that speaketh. For if they escaped not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven. Hebrews 12:25. Multitudes of those who came out of Egypt crossed the Red Sea, fed on the manna, and drank of the water from the smitten rock, afterward perished in the wilderness. And we are told... Now all these things happened unto them for examples, and they are written for our admonition. Wherefore let him that thinketh he standeth, take heed, lest he fall. 1 Corinthians 12:10 and 11 For a holy God will no more be mocked now than he would be then. As we have seen in an earlier paragraph, 1 Peter 1.5 places salvation in the future, as does Romans 13.11, 1 Timothy 4.16, unto which the saints are kept by the power of God through faith. Heaven can only be reached by continuing along the sole path that leads thither, namely the narrow way. Those who persevere not in faith and holiness, love and obedience, will assuredly perish. Whatever temporal faith, natural love, goodly attainments, and confident assurance may appear for a while, they are a bed shorter than a man can stretch himself upon, and a covering narrower than the soul can wrap itself in. Isaiah 28:20. Many false prophets shall arise and shall deceive many, and because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall not merely wane or cool off, but wax cold. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. Matthew 24:13. All temptations to deny the faith, to forsake Christ, to go back unto the world, to give free rein to the lust of the flesh must be resisted to our last breath or our profession will prove worthless. 5. Enablement for this perseverance is wrought in the saints by God. Their deliverance from a total and final falling away is not owing to any power or sufficiency in themselves, though their moral agency be not impaired, and though continuance in well-doing be required of them, yet their enduring unto the end is not to be attributed unto their fidelity, nor to the strength of the new nature which they received at regeneration. No, Christian perseverance depends wholly and entirely on the will and fidelity, the influence and energy of God, working in them both to will and to do of His good pleasure, making them perfect in every good work, to do His will, working in them that which is well-pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ. Hebrews 13:21. It is God who, having begun a good work in them, will carry it on until the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1, 6.
If the Holy Spirit were taken from the believer and be left to himself to stand or fall, he would immediately cease to be a believer and fall totally from a state of grace. S. Hopkins Freely will any renewed person subscribe to the following lines. If ever it should come to pass that any sheep of Christ should fall away, my feeble, fickle soul, alas, would fall a thousand times a day, were not thy love as firm as free, thou soon wouldst take it, Lord, from me. 6. Christian perseverance is consistent with being sanctified, but in part. It is most important that this be clearly stated, lest the Lord's people conclude they are outside the pale of the covenant. At the new birth, a holy principle or nature is imparted to them, but the old and sinful nature is not eradicated, nor is it to the slightest degree improved. Indwelling corruptions are as much opposed to God as they were before conversion and just as active. Pray against them as he may, strive against them as he will, yet the believer is constantly overcome by them. Frequently does he have to exclaim with David, Iniquities prevail against me. Psalm 65, 3. The experience described in Romans 7, 14 through 25 is that of every genuine Christian. God gives no man such a measure of grace in this life as to make him sinless. In many things we all offend. James 3, 2. And by sudden surprisals and under great temptations, believers may fall into particular gross outward acts of sin, yet they will not become totally corrupt and sinful as the unregenerate are, nor do they sin with their whole heart. Christian sanctification, then, is the maintaining of holy affections and actions in the midst of native depravity and all its outflows. Despite great discouragements, their faith and grace never wholly fail, sanctified but in part now, glorified in the future. 7. From all that has been before us, it will thus be seen that perseverance can be predicated only of those who know the grace of God in truth. Colossians 1, 6 who experience its supernatural operations in their own souls. Not a suppositionary grace, which may be held in reckless abandonment, but a spiritual grace, which causes its possessor to walk cautiously. What Scripture teaches is that there never was, never will be, and never can be such a thing as the total and final falling away of one who has really repented and trusted on Christ, that in every instance where a divine miracle of grace has been wrought, that soul shall stand when this world and all its works shall be burned up. Rightly has it been said, the question of the perpetuity of grace is the question of a genuine gospel. Is grace permanent? Then the gospel is a reality. Is grace temporary? Then the gospel is a will-o'-the-wisp, a phantom benediction, a dream of blessedness from which one may awake to find himself bereft 
of all that raptured him. G.F. Bishop Chapter 4 It's Marvel This is an aspect of our subject which has received far too little attention from those who have written and preached thereon. Amid all the dust which controversy has raised up, only too often one of the grandest wonders of divine grace has been hidden from the sight of the theological contestants. Alas, how frequently is this the case, that being so occupied with the shell, we reach not the kernel. Even those who have sought to defend this truth against the assault of papish and Arminian antagonists did not sufficiently hold up to view the glorious miracle which it embodies. The security of the saint concerns not only the divine veracity and faithfulness, but it also exemplifies the workings of divine power. The believers cleaving unto the Lord, despite all hindrances and temptations to the contrary, not only manifest the efficacy of God's soul-great salvation, but displays the marvels of his workmanship therein. That the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church of Christ. That Satan is unable to destroy a single member of it. That the weakest shall be more than conqueror through him that loved them should fill us with admiration and adoration. All the blessings of the Christian life may be summed up in two eminent ones, for they include all the others of which he is the recipient from the moment of the new birth to his arrival in heaven, namely regeneration or instating him into life and the preservation of that life through all the difficulties and dangers of his pilgrimage to the safe conducting him into glory. Hence it is, we so often find them linked together in Scripture, just as the work of creation at the first and then the upholding of all things by divine power and providence are yoked together as works of like wonder. Hebrews 1, 2, and 3. So we find regeneration and preservation joined together as the sum of the operations of grace. Hath he not made thee and established thee, Deuteronomy 32.6. I have made and will bear, even I will carry and deliver you, Isaiah 46.4. In Psalm 66.9, both are comprehended in one word, who putteth, margin, thy soul in life, and who holdeth thy soul in life, first imparting life, and then sustaining it, so also in the New Testament, I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, John 10:28. begotten us again unto a living hope, kept by the power of God through faith, First Peter 1, 3, and 5 sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ, Jude 1. This great marvel of divine preservation is enlarged upon and celebrated in Psalm 66, after saying, O bless our God, ye people, and make the voice of his praise to be heard, which holdeth our soul in life, and suffereth not our feet to be moved, verses 8 and 9. 
the psalmist pointed out first. They had been proved and tried as silver is tried, verse 10, which denotes the sorest of trials, Ezekiel 22:22. Second, God had brought them into the net and had lain affliction upon their loins, verse 11. That is, he had so encompassed them round about with afflictions that there was no way of escaping out of them. Compare Isaiah 51:20. Third, God had caused men to ride over their heads, verse 12. That is, they were delivered to the will of cruel enemies, who treated them as slaves. Fourth, they had gone through fire and water, verse 12, which denotes the extremity of evils. Nor were these various dangers, perils, to their outward man only, but tryings and testings of their faith, as thou, Lord, hast approved us, verse 10 intimates. Yet through all of them they had been sustained and preserved. God had supported their faith and upheld them under his sorest chastenings. Having blessed God on behalf of other saints and invited his readers to do the same, the psalmist added a personal testimony recounting the Lord's goodness unto himself. Come and hear, all ye that fear God, and I will declare what he hath done for my soul. Verse 16, which confession continues to the end of the psalm. That testimony is not to be divorced from its context, but regarded as the continuation of what he had affirmed in the preceding verses. It was as though he said, What I ask you to praise the Lord for is not something with which I have had no first-hand acquaintance, but rather of that I have experienced in my own checkered history. The Lord put and held my soul in life during the many buffetings I have passed through. He did not suffer the waters to completely submerge me, but kept my head above them. Give me an audience, ye fellow pilgrims, while I recount to you the wonder workings of the God of all grace with me. Let me review the whole of my wilderness journey, and tell of God's failing not to show himself strong on my behalf. I cried unto him, Blessed be God, who hath not turned away my prayer, nor his mercy from me. Verse 20. Ah, could not each child of God emulate the psalmist in that? We are greatly interested and delighted when we read or hear of how different ones were brought out of darkness into God's marvelous light. We marvel at and admire the variety of the means and methods employed by him in convicting of sin and discovering Christ to different ones. We are awed and rejoiced when we learn of how some notorious rebel was brought to the foot of the cross. But equally interesting, equally wonderful, equally blessed is the story of each Christian's life after conversion. If the mature believer looks back at the whole of his journey and reviews all God's gracious dealings with him, what a tale he could unfold. Let him describe the strange twistings and windings of his path, all ordered by infinite wisdom, as he now perceives. Let him tell of the and the tossings through which his frail craft has come, and how often the Lord said to the winds and waves, 
be still. Let him narrate the providential help which came when he was in sore straits, the deliverances from temptation when he was almost overcome, the recoveries from backslidings, the revivings after deadness of heart, the comfortings in sorrow, the upliftings when borne down by difficulties and discouragements, the answers to prayer when things appeared hopeless, the patience which has borne with dullness, the grace with unbelief, the joys of communion with the Lord when cut off from public means of grace. What a series of miracles the Christian has experienced. The saint is indeed a marvel of marvels. Without strength, yet continuing to plod along his uphill course, Think of a tree flourishing in the midst of a sandy desert where there is neither soil nor water. Imagine a house suspended in midair with no visible means of support above or below. Conceive of a man living week after week and year after year in a morgue yet maintaining his vigor. Suppose a lone lamb secure in the midst of hungry wolves, or a maid keeping her garments white as she plows her way through deep mud and mire, and in such a figure you have an image of the Christian life. The new nature is kept alive between the very jaws of death. Health of soul is preserved while breathing a fetid atmosphere and surrounded by those with the most contagious and fatal diseases. It is like a defenseless dove successfully eluding droves of hawks bent on her destruction. It is like a man subsisting on a barren wilderness where there is neither food nor drink. It is like a traveler on some icy summit with unfathomable precipices on either side where a false step means certain destruction. Oh, the wonder of Christian perseverance in the face of such handicaps and obstacles. 1. This is seen in the character of those who are chosen by God. We would naturally conclude that if he determined to have a people in this world through whom he would show forth his praises, that he will select the most promising and excellent, those of strong intellectual power, those of noble birth, those of sweet disposition, those of outstanding moral character. But his ways are different from ours. He singles out the most unlikely and unworthy ones to be the vessels of mercy. Thus it was in the Old Testament era. Why were the Hebrews taken to be the most favored of all nations? Had they a stronger natural claim than others? Assuredly not. The Egyptians were a more intelligent race, as the monuments of their industry attested to this day. The Chaldeans were more ancient, more numerous, more civilized, and albeit exerted a much greater influence on the rest of the world. Was it then because the Israelites were more spiritual, more likely to prove amenable to the divine government? No, for ere they set foot upon Canaan, it was expressly declared unto them, Understand, therefore, that the Lord thy God giveth thee not this good land to possess it for thy righteousness. For thou art a stiff-necked people. Deuteronomy 9.6 
It is the same thing in the New Testament dispensation. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and base things of the world, and things which are despised hath God chosen, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are. First Corinthians one twenty six through twenty eight. How remarkable is this? The ones chosen to successfully resist Satan overcome the world, persevere in the difficult path of faith and obedience, and finally win through to heaven are the feeble, the weak, the base, the despised, and the mere nobodies. This has ever presented a stumbling block to the proud Pharisee. Have any of the rulers believed on him? John 7:48, That the priests and scribes be passed by, and publicans and harlots called to feast with Christ. That heavenly things should be hidden from the wise and prudent, and revealed to babes, evokes the sneer of the learned. Christianity is only suited to old women and children. And why is this God's way? That no flesh should glory in his presence. 1 Corinthians 1.29 That the crown of honor should be placed on the head of him who alone is entitled to wear it. That we may learn the marvel of perseverance is the result of sovereign and miraculous grace. 2. This is seen in the fewness of them. There is but a remnant according to the election of grace. Romans 11:5. Even among those who bear the name of the Lord, and in comparison with the hundreds of millions in heathendom who worship false gods, and the vast multitudes in Christendom who make no profession at all, the real people of God constitute such an insignificant handful as to be almost lost to view. One had naturally thought that if the Lord purposed to have a people on earth who should glorify his name, that they would be conspicuous in size, commanding attention and respect. Is it not a maxim of worldly wisdom that there is strength in numbers? And did not Napoleon give expression thereto in his satirical dictum? God is always on the side of the biggest battalions. Ah, but here too God's thoughts and ways are the very opposite of the world, for his strength is made perfect in weakness. Second Corinthians 12:9. And the things which are highly esteemed among men are abomination in the sight of God. Luke 16:15. Turn, my readers, to Judges 7:2. And ponder anew the lesson Jehovah taught Gideon when he said, The people that are with thee are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel vaunt themselves. 
not only have the Lord's people always been in the minority, but they have never included more than a fractional percentage of Earth's population. Only eight were delivered from the flood, from the days of Noah unto Moses, a period of roughly eight and a half centuries. We may count upon our fingers those recorded in Holy Writ who gave evidence of spiritual life. It requires no courage or resolution to follow the tide of popular opinion, for one is likely to encounter less opposition when he is on the side of the majority. What a miracle that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob preserved their piety in Canaan when surrounded by the heathen. The principle which we are now engaged in illustrating was emphasized by Moses when he said unto Israel, The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, because ye were more in number than any people. For ye are the fewest of all people. Deuteronomy 7.7 It is the same in this New Testament dispensation. Near the close of Paul's life, Christians were referred to as a sect everywhere spoken against. Acts 28.22 The Lord Jesus declared that his flock was a little one, Luke 12, 32, which increases the wonder of its survival, and though in recent years the membership of the churches swelled to huge proportions, more and more it is now becoming apparent that with rare exceptions they were but nominal professors, and that only a few tread that way, which lead us unto life Matthew 7:14 3 this is seen in God's leaving them in this world we might well suppose that since the father hath set his heart upon them he would take them home as soon as they are brought from death unto life Instead, they are left down here, most of them for many years, in a hostile country in the enemy's territory, for the whole world lieth in the wicked one, 1 John 5:19. And why? That they may have opportunity to manifest their love for him, that despite ceaseless opposition and innumerable temptations to cast off their allegiance, they will, by his grace, remain faithful unto death. We marvel that Noah was preserved in the ark when the devastating flood without swept away the entire human race from the earth, and when he was surrounded by all manner of wild beasts within, why was he not torn to pieces by the lions and tigers, or poisoned by the stench from the dung of all the animals? Though he remained there no less than a year, yet at the end thereof he and all his household stepped forth alive and well. Not less wonderful is the survival of the Christian in the world where there is nothing to help spiritually but everything to the contrary. The believer may be compared to an individual who has thrown off allegiance to his king, has disowned his country, and refuses obedience to its laws, yet continues to dwell in the land he has renounced and hard by the sovereign he has forsworn. The grace of God has called us out of the world, but the providence of God has 
sent us into the world. We may therefore expect nothing but hatred and hostility from it. The world will never forgive the act by which we broke from its thraldom, renounced its sway, relinquished its pleasures, and resigned its friendship, nor can it look with complacency upon the godly, self-denying, and unworldly life of the Christian, which is a constant rebuke of its own carnality and folly. First it will veil its opposition and conceal its malignity beneath smiles and flattery, seeking to win back the one it has lost. But when that effort proves unavailing, it changes its course and, with venomed tongue, tireless zeal and devilish tactics, seeks by detraction and falsehood to wound and injure the people of God. We marvel at the three Hebrews not being destroyed in Babylon's fiery furnace, but it is not less a miracle for a believer to persevere in the path of holiness amid the contagious sinfulness, seductive allurements, and relentless persecutions of an evil world. 4. This is seen in the old nature being left in the saint, since God is pleased to leave his people in this howling wilderness for a season, where everything seems to be dead against them. Surely he will rid them of that which is most of all calculated to lead to their fatal undoing. If he requires them to be holy in all manner of conversation, First Peter 1.15, will he not purge them of all inward corruptions? If the sons of God are to be without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom they are to shine as lights in the world, Philippians 2.15, will he not remove all darkness from their understanding? And again, we are made to realize how worthless is all human reasoning upon spiritual matters. Indwelling sin remains in the believer. The flesh is neither eradicated nor transformed. But how can we expect those with the sink of iniquity still within them to maintain a godly walk? Ah, therein we are brought to see again the marvel of the saint's perseverance. If a lorry has to pass down a street where the buildings on either side are burning fiercely, would it not greatly augment the wonder of its journeying through successfully when we learned that the lorry was laden with barrels of gunpowder and dynamite? This is precisely the case of the believer. There is that in him which is responsive to the evil without him. The world and his heart are in a confederacy against the good of his soul, so that he can neither eat nor drink, work nor sleep in safety, because of enemies without and treacherous lusts within. For a holy angel to dwell here would involve him in no danger, for in freedom from all inward corruptions there would be nothing in him to which the allurements of the world could appeal. But the Christian has a stack of dry tinder ready to ignite as soon as the sparks of temptation alight thereon.
Oh, the policy and power, the strength and prevalency, the nearness and treachery of indwelling sin. It is something which cleaves to all the faculties, not only in us, but part and parcel of us. It dwells there, Romans 7:17, ever seeking our overthrow. Such is our native depravity that it is capable of transmuting blessings into cursings, making things lawful into snares and entangling us with everything we meet with. Oh, my reader, if it was a miracle when Elisha caused iron to swim, Second Kings 2, not less so is it, when our affections are set upon things above and our minds stayed on Jehovah. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.